Unfiltered. Broadcasting live from West Wichita in the KQAM studios. It's time for your weekend kickstart with Wichita's number one conservative talk radio host. This is Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome into Kansas Talk right here on Wichita's Big Talker, 1480 KQAM. Good Saturday morning. It's another great weekend here in South Central Kansas on KQAM 1480. Also on our 99.7 HD4. If you have your smart radio, you can listen to us on there. Also, our friends out in Garden City at 1240 KIUL as well. So we are covering the entire southern half of the state of Kansas. And great to have you with us for the ride today. Boyd, we have a show lined up for you. It's going to be... Is Donald Trump says huge and bigly. So we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, hour number two, State Representative Stephen Owens, District number 74 in the Newton area. We're going to talk with him about HB 2350. What is HB 2350, Andy? Well, it's the bill that the legislature passed regarding human trafficking and human smuggling in the state that has caused some cause for concern, I guess to say, in certain communities regarding the crackdown of illegal immigration. Is that what it's for? And can law enforcement actually use it that way? We'll talk about that now. Police Chief Joe Sullivan for the city and Cedric County Sheriff Jeff Easter have both come out and said no. They don't have the authority to try to enforce immigration based on this bill. And it has nothing to do with that. And they're not putting their officers into that. So is that good? And is it enough for certain communities to be concerned or not concerned? We'll talk about that now. Number two, also Emporia State University apparently is the only university, or maybe this is just the norm in universities around, to where you're not allowed to fire professors. You're not allowed to lay them off due to budgetary concerns. They may be tenured, you may be doing a squeeze, there may be no students in your department, but you're not allowed to fire them as they're sitting in a lawsuit right now and the court's telling them to reinstate a couple of them. They've relayed off the ones they just reinstated, and that's a little weird too. So we'll get to that at uh, the bottom of next hour as well. But I don't want to waste any time because it's been a while since we've had this guy in studio. And we have to do the appropriate sounding off here for the program, shall we? It was so long I couldn't even find it on my little B-bar here with my sound effects. But Sedgwick County Commissioner Jim Howell, what's happening, well, Andy, sir? It has been a long time since we've talked. It, it has been a little bit. So how, yeah. it's good to see you. I don't know that we've had you in since really the kickoff of springtime and summer. So, uh, man, a lot of changes in the Sedgwick County Commission right now. Things are changing. You know, Ryan Beatty's uh, settled in. and uh, Yes. Uh, we are. I, I think last time we talked, I think we were in the new building at that time. But it has been a while since we talked. But we were in the... Uh, the Ruffin Building downtown, we're no longer in the county courthouse. That's being remodeled right now. Mm-hmm. So that's a fairly significant change for uh, recent things in the county commission. But, uh, you know, it is, uh, what is this, middle of June now, and we are basically a couple of months from passing a, bu- a budget. And that has just uh, become front and center. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of discussion and, and meetings going on. And uh, it's going to be very, you know, I think every every taxing jurisdiction right now has a, has a lot of challenges with their budget, so we're no different than that. But uh, Don't get me so excited. I mean, first oh. thing in the morning, talking about budgetary process. Let's let's do this thing, man. You know, actually, I have a, I actually have a question for you. Uh, uh, you know, the, a couple of years, I think it was in 2019, uh, the state legislature passed what we call Senate Bill 13, mm-hmm. and what that did, did is create this uh, new definition of a tax increase. You know, politicians for years have said, well, I didn't increase the mill levy rate, therefore I didn't raise taxes, but we all know the assessed value goes up. Right. And with the assessed value going up and the same rate, mill levy rate of taxation that creates more dollars, 
and those extra dollars, then we use those in government to, you know, theoretically grow go, grow government. Well, um, the, the Senate Bill 13 redefined that, said if you increase the dollars, even a penny, that's a tax increase. So they redefined what a, ta- what a tax increase is. They say if you want to exceed last year's revenue collection, then you have to go through this entire process of pa- passing a resolution saying I'm going to exceed the revenue neutral rate. Then you have to send out a mailer to all the taxpayers, let them know where the public hearings are going to be. Sure. Invite the public in to speak to that. Uh, let them let them give a chance to say, you know, please don't uh, raise my taxes and that type of thing. And then when you finally do pass the budget, it has to be very transparent. Um, we have to publish it in the paper. You actually have to have a, a vote of the people. It has to be a, a roll call vote so no one can hide behind it and say, I didn't vote for that. Anyway, so this this transparency and accountability bill, uh, it was certainly well-intentioned. But here we are. We have a – you can – who do you what, – what inflationary rate do you think we've had in the last year or so? Well, I mean, according to the federal level, we've been sitting around 7 to 9%. Yeah, I think I think 9% is a reasonable number. That's about what uh, – I would say that our assessed value went up 8.98% is the is increase in assessed value. Mm. Now, of course, if we just increased uh, – we just use the same same levels last year. Sure. We'd have an eight point nine eight percent in revenue. Now, I don't the, think that's the, the right number. I don't think we should. I don't think we should do that. Yeah, let's take it to the next level. Let's. How do we gauge inflation rates? I mean, what are we comparing it to? Is it just year over year? Because if we compare it to fifty years ago, we're sitting at like a two hundred percent interest rate on many issues. So, and, and I think we should start relating it back to like when normalcy happened prior to. I don't know, 2008. So let's look at inflation compared to that level. Well, it is, it's a great question. You know, uh, you know, what are you using? We we tend to use what we call CPI slash dash U, which is for the uh, the urban area, Midwest urban area of the of the country. Now that maybe that's not fair, but we also look at the the pricing. Uh, I'm sorry, the housing market. Mm. Prices of housing have have just gone up. And if you don't believe that, I mean. Did you see the article recently that said we're, I think we're number eight in the nation for the hottest real estate market in the country? Did see that. We're popular. Yeah. So, you know, if that if that's true, then what that means then, if you have a house, you want to sell it, you'll sell it very quickly and sell it at a pretty good price. That means housing values have gone up. We also know the price of two by fours have gone up. The price of labor to put the two by fours together, that's yeah. also gone up. So commodities, labor, gasoline, fuel, energy, everything it takes to build a house has, has gone up in value. So... Yes, housing costs more. If you try to build a house today versus the same house a couple of years ago, it's going to cost you drastically more today. And so that's reflected in our housing market. And again, that's what we call the assessed value. Yeah. The assessed value goes up. That creates more tax dollars. So the question, come back to Senate Bill 13 again. again. The question is, can we deliver the same services we have in the past? People apparently like those services. Um, are we delivering services you don't want? Are we wasting your money by doing things you don't want? Well, that's another good question, but... Assuming we're just doing exactly what you want us to do, and if we're efficient, and everything costs more, it costs the government more too. We pay more for vehicles, we pay more for fuel. Our labor market has gone up, and on it goes. Then it doesn't seem it doesn't make sense to live under last year's revenue level, right? If we don't want to deliver the same services, one of four things has to be true: either you've overtaxed the people before, and you've got a savings that you probably shouldn't have, or you are wasteful and you're you're finding efficiencies to balance the books, or you're going to cut services. Or you're going to raise taxes, and so my question is: If you have efficient government that does exactly what the people want, and no more, we don't have a choice but to raise revenue above what we had last year. Otherwise, we have to cut services, and people don't want us to do that. And some people say, "Well, yeah, I do want you to cut. Please cut." Okay, I, I invite people. Please tell me where to cut. Um, I, I've been going around the Andy. I, I'd like to invite your listeners. Actually, I've been going around the community for about the last six months, doing what, doing what I call a tax talk. 
and I can educate people on how taxes work, different kinds of taxes, compare Kansas with other states. Um, we can talk about that. how mill levy works. I mean, it's it's kind of a technical discussion, but it's it's educational. At the end of the day, people say, I want you just to reduce the size and scope of government. Well, what they're really saying is, we believe there's waste in government. Quit spending money on things we don't want. And I don't feel I feel like my taxes aren't being fair. I'm I'm being unfairly treated. Yeah. Um. So, at the end of the day, if if everyone feels like if you felt like taxes were fair, and the strategy how we get revenues was fair, and we're only spending money on things that you want us to spend money on, then don't complain about taxes. Sure. You know, it, it is uh, common sense. I think what we also have is Washington think, or Washington think is where we think that we can get more and more government services, the government to serve the people. And yet uh, no one pays for it or somebody else has to pay for it. I'm not going to pay for it. I just want, I want to receive good things on the, on the backs of other people, probably our great, great grandchildren. So yeah. it's, it's, it's irresponsible to think that way. Yeah, it's a difficult discussion to have now as we talk about, obviously, no government runs completely streamlined and completely efficient, but you guys have been working hard, I think, over the years, and I've been proud of what you guys have done in Cedric County, trying to at least address some of those issues. Yeah. How is government efficiency, do you think, at the county level right now? Oh, I'm, I love this question. I didn't tell you to ask that either, did I? I you did not, no. Well, we have what's called a price of government calculation, and actually, we are at the lowest point in the last 30 years on the on the the price of government. In other words, we're delivering more services today than we ever have at a lower cost than we ever have. Now, yes, our budgets have gone up, but uh, there's a it's a calculation based on um, how many dollars are floating around in the economy, how many dollars do you touch, and how much of those dollars go to support county government. By the way, when I say county government, I really differentiate between between county and city. I don't think the city of Wichita especially, I don't think they're as nearly as efficient as we are. <laughs> Not quite. But I can tell you, we've, we've, we've added about 3% employees over the last uh, 14 years. We lowered the mill levy by, by two mills in the last 14 years. And uh, if you look at, you know, compare, compare our spending, our budget with, say, things like wage increases or assessed value growth or CPI growth, that's a consumer price index or inflationary growth, we are actually uh, growing government at a lower rate and uh, pr- providing more services for less cost than we ever have before. So I can make a solid argument that Cedric County is very, very efficient. That is good news. Now let's talk about some of these programs, because some of them have been in the news over the last few weeks on some of the expansions, or at least uh, investments that you guys have been working on. One of them has been, what's it called, the CARE unit, I believe, the emergency response unit with more mental health workers mm-hmm. going out to calls on 911 calls where we've had one unit, and it sounds like it's been relatively popular. You guys expanding to, what, three or four now, aren't you? Four more. Yeah. And this is a, uh, a partnership between Cedric County and Wichita. In fact, I'd like to credit Wichita for leading on this on this issue. Um, we are providing staff, but they are, the, the money primarily is coming from Wichita for these five, uh, for these four additional units. And uh, what that is is ComCare Mental Health Professionals. We have different kinds of professionals that get on these vehicles uh, coupled with a uh, law enforcement officer and, and potentially a paramedic, but they will go to mental health calls around the community. We want to, I guess the intent is to expand this to uh, 24-7, round-the-clock coverage of a, of a mobile mental health unit that can go out and, mm. and meet people in the uh, field, and they can deliver uh, services out there in the field and hopefully not have to take them to St. Joe Hospital or Mental Health Hospital or to jail or to calm care or whatever. If they can just treat them in the field, it's cheaper, less expensive for the, for the taxpayer, and it's more effective. So... At the end of the day, it's called ICT one was the was the rollout. We've done we've we've had ICT one now for about three years, and the uh, new units will be IC two, three, four, and five. Um, and they have to buy new vehicles. They have to get some additional staff and things like that. But this is a uh, it is an expansion of government. It's a new service again. So this is in a sense growing government. But we have a problem, <laughs> and 
And if you don't, <laughs> if you don't believe me, walk and just drive downtown on you know any any day of the week and see what's going on at uh, Second and Topeka. Yeah, and uh, you'll see all kinds of drug problems, mental health problems, homelessness issues, and those things all intersect each other. And uh, ICT One, working with the homeless outreach team, they they can deal with most of the issues that they'll see on the city streets. Yeah, I know this is more of a city problem, but when it comes to homelessness, you mentioned homelessness has been on the rise in the city of Wichita for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of the city's programs, trying to address that issue, are you guys involved in any of that as well? Trying to figure out ways to uh, deal with this issue. So this is one of those things where uh, county government has uh, a different hat to wear than what cities do. We we obviously do care about the topic uh, greatly. Uh, we like to cheer the city on, but uh, this is primarily a Wichita problem. It's not so much in the other 19 cities of the county. Sure. And again, we have plenty of things to focus on as a county government. We don't need duplication of services. So we just would rather support and cheer on our good friends across the street. And Wichita does a pretty good job. I know that we we see what we we feel like it's getting worse and worse, but really the, the services are increasing. And uh, I believe that Wichita is doing a pretty good job. Uh, they're doing everything they possibly can. For people who want to get out of, the, out of that situation, there are resources available. Sure. And Wichita is doing a good job connecting them to those services. Good. Now, on the other front, the big news really was on regards to mental health. We are going to be building one of the largest mental health state facilities here in Sedgwick County. You guys uh, are working on that uh, because we don't have a whole lot of them across the state. And obviously, with the large population we have in this area, this is big news for the area here. It is big. In fact, this will be the best one, I think, because not only is it going to be a new facility with a new, maybe more modern configuration, but at the end of the day, Osawatomie and Larnard are not in, in places in the state where they can find a lot of people to want to work there. Sure. And so they've had struggles trying to find people to staff the hospitals, and there's almost always a waiting line. And, um, you know, they're... The state just frankly doesn't have enough beds, and so if you're going to put a new a new hospital out there somewhere in the state of Kansas, it makes perfect sense for it to be in Sedgwick County. and And we have lobbied very, very hard for several years to get this done. And thankfully, the state has stepped up. Now, this is I think we we actually have a third chunk of money coming at us right now. The first one was 15 million. We had another another 25 million this year. Then I believe another 15 million has been earmarked after that. So altogether, if you you know, we have 40 million basically this week. Uh, cash on hand, uh, ready to go. We're doing an RFP, but I believe there's 15 more million coming. So it's 55 million in play right now. And uh, the location's not been selected. We're doing RFP, trying to find a competitive process to do the design and the construction of the of the state-owned and operated mental health hospital in Sedgwick County. So just to be clear, we're working with the state. We're right. helping provide the uh, the technical uh you know, creation of the of the hospital, but this will be a state-owned and operated hospital sure. in Sedgwick County. Sure. That's exciting. And it's going to be 50 beds, is that correct? That's the uh, initial plan, 50, but I believe there's there's plenty of people saying that need to have expansion up to up to 100 beds. And so mm-hmm. whether it's actually 50 and it stays at 50 or whether it's just a, a plan on how to make it bigger if we need to, sure. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to play out right now. But I, I think 50 beds will be what you'll see at the beginning. Now, that's a good opportunity. The next question is, do we have enough mental health professionals to be able to address this? Do we have enough psychologists and those doctors that specialize in these issues to really help when the facility is actually built? You know, that's another really great question. So that kind of ties into what they've been talking about, the uh, biomedical uh, campus that uh, has been on the Wichita Regional Chamber of Commerce's uh, platform this last year was the biomedical campus. And I believe that the intent is, well, not only, we, we actually have some uh, some training programs that the county has invested in to create some, uh, some uh, counseling professionals that can help with these people. But we also have this biomedical campus. I believe that K, uh, KU and WSU have partnered together with Regents, and they've gotten an earmark of 
I don't know exactly the number. I think it's around three hundred million dollars, maybe three hundred fifty million dollars. I think they wanted a lot, wanted a lot more. Sure. But the intent is this money is apparently being earmarked for a biomedical campus here in Wichita, Kansas. And so uh, I don't know. I'm not really up on, on exactly the status, but I heard that that was approved, and I believe it is coming. But one of the things they plan on doing is is moving, um, may, may possibly moving the uh, uh, health department over to that. I believe actually. I may be getting myself confused on some stuff, but there is a um, there is a KU medical building over on Ninth and um, I one thirty five. I believe that would that would move over. Uh, that's the pharmacy school, and and, a, uh, and I believe it's also a uh, uh, just a general practi- practitioner school. That would move, but they're going to expand it to all kinds of other skill sets, and I believe part of that would be this uh, mental health uh, sure. track. And so, again, just trying to find ways to get people access to the training again. It's a huge need. The, the community certainly does not have enough. You're right about that. But but this is a community where I think this is going to work very well. We have a, uh, a path for people to get through it and then provide services and actually have a really good career. So uh, I believe this is our future here. It's going to be the future. It is desperately needed. I'm glad we're addressing it. It is, I think, a little delayed because it's been, I think mental health has been an issue that's been needed for a long time, but we haven't really wanted to address it or we didn't know how to address it maybe. There's just that stigma of, it's okay to say if you have anxiety, depression. I saw a study, and I don't know if you saw this or not as well, about a week or so ago, that the average fifth grader right now has the same level of anxiety as someone that was in a mental asylum in the 1950s. That's insane. Well, and I wonder why that happens. You know, I, I have to look at the changes in culture, you know, the, the family life that people are growing up in. Confusion of genders or something. The dysfunction, I don't know. the fatherlessness, <laughs> you know, all kinds. I think you see drug abuse by parents. Uh, you see... Uh, Domestic violence in the home. You see uh, broken, fractured families. We see people who have uh, basically no hope because they they uh, they they grew up basically with a very uh, uh, maybe a depressed outlook on life, and it translates to their children. So, sort of thinking about you know the causes. I think can't you have to say also that we have such a uh, an illicit drug problem in this community, and I don't mean marijuana. I'm talking about methamphetamines and especially fentanyl. things like fentanyl. Yeah. yeah. And so this, you know, if if these young people experiment with that, or they have friends that do that, and they see death and 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 other folks that are struggling with mental illness, it just it just weighs on everybody. Yeah, it's a terrible ordeal. I'm glad you guys are addressing this one. So that's a nice check that we're going to see that here in our community. Got to take a break here real quick. Sedgwick County Commissioner Jim Howell, as we talk about a lot of issues here for the hour, we have. Some election stuff coming up, not just election season in general, but some policies you guys are working on. We have a new election commissioner as well, getting geared up for the, I guess it's perfect for the off season this year, but then also for getting geared up for 2024 next year as well. Got a lot more to get to. It's Candace Talk right here on Wichita's Big Talker KQAM. Happy Saturday to you. Stay right here. She's always worried about things like that. Welcome back into Candace Talk right here on Wichita's Big Talker KQAM. We'll get back to Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howell here in just a minute. Hey, I want to tell you about my friends over at Napoleon Appliance Repair. They were voted in 2022 Wichita's best of when it comes to appliance repair in the community. They can fix anything, man. I love these guys. Mike Sr., Mike Jr., these guys rock it. 
great friends here on the program, great friends at KQAM. And if you have any of your appliances that may not be working to the best of their ability, give them a call because you don't want your appliances to go out, especially right now when it's hot outside. I know you may be grilling more than usual, but I don't know, maybe the ice dispenser in your refrigerator may be going out. You don't want that to happen. You need some protection. You need to make sure your things are working the way they're supposed to. You can give them a call. Napoleon Appliance Repair. Give them a call at 316-409-1525. 316-409-1525. You can also find them on their Facebook page at Napoleon Appliance Repair, LLC. You can find anything that they can help out with. They have years of experience and obviously being voted the best of. They know what they're doing with anything from the old school equipment that may be still rocking it to some of the newer equipment that's like a new computer telling you that you're out of broccoli in the refrigerator. Yeah, apparently that stuff's like the cool new thing nowadays. So that's a little concerning to me. But if you have that, all the power to you. Cool. No judgment here. Napoleon Appliance Repair can help out no matter what it is. All right, we'll take a break here right around the corner. We'll continue our conversation with Cedric County Commissioner Jim Heller right here on Kansas Talk on the Big Talker KQAM. Now back to Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed. Welcome back into the program. Thanks for hanging out with us today on a Saturday morning. Happy Saturday. Starting off your weekend. The best way we know how to do so is getting you fired up about budgets and things. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you wake up in the morning, but I get woken up excited about talking about budgets and tax rates. Don't you? Oh, I know. It's so much oh, fun. man. So much fun. <laughs> Welcome into it. Uh, reminder, hour number two, right around the corner, Stephen Owen, state representative, my state representative, district number 74, will be joining us to talk about HB 2350. As we see some, quote-unquote, misinformation coming out of the Kelly administration when she vetoed that bill. So we'll do that here in just a little bit. We talked about budgets right now with uh, Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howell. Let's shift gears a bit. Some changes in the uh, in the county, which has been really some interesting news. We have a new election commissioner. Now, this year is an off, quote-unquote, election cycle, although it's going to be a big one. Uh, with is. the election, with the mayor election here in Wichita, it's a big oh, one. Oh man, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. So uh, we have the new election commissioner getting ready for that one, and then getting ready for 2024. But talk about some of the changes that we've seen, and uh, not along just with the new commissioner, but we also are working on new policy. The city uh, just kind of changed their, uh, I guess, rules when it comes to yard say uh, yard oh, signs man. and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that sign yeah. thing gets me going. I, I could talk about that all day. <laughs> Let's talk about the election office for just a few minutes. So going back to election commissioners ago, we actually earmarked $3 million to buy a new election building uh, facility. And we've not been able to find a facility that really meets our needs. Uh, that, that One of the requirements is they want it somewhat downtown, close to the highway, has to have good parking availability and, you know, loading dock and things like that. So there's a there, we've been looking for a building for quite a while. We, we keep on finding buildings that we think are going to work out, and they, they just don't work out for some reason. But that's... That's still ongoing, but we do have a new election commissioner, and, and surprise, I think, the, the Board of County Commissioners because she's not uh, really as uh, agreeable that she wants the same size building we've been looking for. So we're kind of having to change our scope of uh, just a little bit. Our target building is going to have to be a little bit, little bit bigger than we thought. Um, one change, this goes clear back to Bill Gale when he was our election commissioner. This is a long time ago now, uh, back in 2006 and 2008. Uh, they got rid of about, about 125 polling locations. I don't know if you know that mm. even happened, but wow. they got it down to about 62 locations. And right now we're up to about 82 locations 
I think just a few years ago, we were up at about 86 uh, polling locations. But when they went and got rid of 125 locations, they added 14 advanced voting locations that same year. Um, so drastically different way of doing elections back in the day. And that's that's kind of where we are today. One of the one of the uh, conflicts we have right now, the Secretary of State, Scott Schwab, and our former election commissioners, and even the one we have now, uh, it's been a, a debate about how many people should be assigned to a poll site. And I think the, the key has to be, you know, if the poll site has enough equipment, enough people to handle it, I'm not sure that it matters to me how many there are. Um, you can have more of them, and they can be smaller in, in, in their resources availability, but uh, that just means there's, you know, there's smaller rooms with less equipment, less people. It's more convenient, perhaps, you don't have to travel so far to get to one of those. Sure. Um, so that's that's been a debate. So this commissioner right now is asking for 15 to 30 more uh, poll sites this next, before, before, between now and the 20, uh, 2024 presidential election. So this is our, our time, frame to, time frame to do that. We also want to increase worker pay. She wants to buy some new equipment. Uh, we need a new warehouse, uh, larger, about about twice the size as we have currently. Um, and oh, major she wants, she's asking for seven new uh, full-time employees to work in her office. And, uh, you know, this all comes with a pretty healthy price. To get all that up, not counting the building, you're looking at a couple million dollars more per year just yeah. on the office. And yet in the building, we're, you know, we, we I said we earmarked it, $3 million. It could be much more. It could be 4 or $5 million, I suppose, to get, to get what she's looking for. But... Start adding this up. We have some short-term, uh, pretty expensive uh, deals to figure out, and we have some long-term, recurring things to figure out. So, the debate is happening right now. Commissioners will do what we can, but uh, I'm not sure we're all going to all going to agree on exactly where we're going to exactly what we're going to do this year. But I think we are going to have to spend some money to get the office uh, funded a little bit better than it has been in the past. But um, this is a push and pull. You know, it's a it's a give and take. It's a bit of a debate and. And that comes with controversy. So we're going to have to work it out and see how we end up. So the proposals that she's adv- asking for with all these upgrades and all the expansion and stuff, does that mean that right now the where we're at, the level that we're at, means that it's not running efficiently or as efficiently as it could be based on just the restraints that we have on the department? I think the word efficient has to be defined in terms of the uh, the, the viewpoint of the voter. I mean, I think that everything's working just fine. I mean, we're de- the job's getting done. Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't the, heard of any major issues. Well, that's, that's, that's a, you and I agree on that. So there have been a few places uh, last election cycle where the lines got, lines got kind of long. Sure. And that wasn't everywhere. Uh, most places, you, you walked into a poll site and you can vote in 10, 15 minutes and walk out. It wasn't a big deal. And I know the one case that we had was like when some machines went down, so we had yeah. to send people to some other polling places. But outside of that, I mean, overall, when Angela Cadillo did it, she did a great job as far as I right. was aware. So that's that's really the thing. So I think in those rare instances where we had a long line, there's a reason why. It was uh, something, that went, something that happened that caused that to happen. But that wasn't the norm. The vast majority of poll sites last year, I think, had a reasonable... Reasonable lines. Now, they value them both amendment in the primary election. Yeah. But we were a little bit unprepared for that one. <laughs> but that's because there was, was a much greater turnout than anybody expected. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that 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 was also an outlier just because of the, what was on the ballot that year. Um, so it, it, at the end of the day, we don't actually have any really great data um, to, do, to uh, tell us exactly uh, how long people have waited in line. I think we need to get better data. But... Uh, one thing we don't want to do is we don't want to invent the invent the um, the solutions after the tre- after the presidential election. So we really have this year to figure out some stuff, and we need to implement between now and and next year's election cycle. But um, anyway, there's certainly a lot to think about. One of the biggest issues is this issue of the mail ballot application. 
Um, it's not required by state law uh, because uh, Bill Gale did what he did back in 2006 to eight. They started sending out uh, sending out to every single registered voter. They can't differentiate. Uh, but they sent them a, a personalized mail ballot application and it's intending to encourage people to vote by mail. Well, that opens up a whole lot of controversy here. Sure. Uh, there's one end of the spectrum. I talked to someone at the uh, Wichita Eagle uh, when I was asked, we talked about this uh, a few weeks back. And I suggested, I said, well, would you like to see a 100% mail ballot election? They said, oh, yeah, that'd be a great idea. I said, yeah, we probably save some money too. Yeah, we'd save some money. I think philosophically, most of us don't think that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the other end of the spectrum says we should have election day as a holiday and only one day and no mail ballots. And, and that's maybe the other end of the spectrum. I lean slightly. To yeah, that I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, the federal law does require we have to have mail ballots and every state sure. has mail ballot opportunities. But the question is, should we as a government government be promoting them? Sure. I think that's where I have a problem. And let me let me let me be honest. I have a real problem because uh, when you walk into a poll site, if you walk in with your wife's your wife your wife's uh, driver's license and say I want to vote, and I'm you know I don't know your wife's name, but I want to vote for my wife, and here's my picture, and you'll pretend to be her. Let's just say they're not going to let you vote. Right? Because why? Because they look at you and they say, well, "Hey, man, you're a dude. You're not this. You're not the person in the picture." That's why we have photo ID. Exactly. That's what that's for. But there's no one checking photo ID on the mail ballots. And they say, "What well, we do?" Uh, signature verification. Well, let me just tell you, that's a joke. Mm. Um, virtually nobody, almost no ballots are thrown out because signature, because signatures don't match. If they fail to sign it, yeah, that goes into a, what's called a cure pile. And those cure piles, they they will uh, contact the voters and say, you forgot to sign your ballot, and they'll come in and they'll sign it. If it doesn't match, which is very, very rare that it doesn't match, we will still call the voter and come in and, and fix it. So how many ballots get cast aside because the signatures don't match? Oh, practically zero. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, the signature verification is is uh, is really not the same thing as a poll site voter uh, experience in terms of uh, election security. It just isn't. And sure. so the question is, should we spend the estimates $115,000 this year? I think that's actually uh, not even close to the real estimate. But let's just say it is uh, correct for the purpose of discussion right now. Should we spend $150,000 taxpayer dollars, precious property tax dollars, to send out this application to people? to get about 18% more people to vote by mail so that it relieves election day pressure and we can actually deploy less equipment, less people, and less poll sites. Sure. Is that good policy? I disagree entirely. Yeah. I think more poll sites is better. Uh, more poll site voting is better. It's more secure. So that's the debate. We're going to have this debate going on for a while. Yeah, it, elections are always a big debate. Now, with more polling sites, how are we doing when it comes to staffing those polling sites with volunteers and with the people just running the polling places throughout Election Day? I know that's always been an issue, and it's now harder to get more people to go and do that. So it all depends on whether we actually are still promoting mail balloting or not. Because if we don't, if we promote mail balloting like as we have in the past, we have as many as uh, seventy thousand mail ballots come in through Central County. That's a wow. huge number. If we do that, uh, continue to do that, then we don't really need more people necessarily, but we need more distribution of the same people and equipment. So it may be just more sites with the same stuff and same number of people. But if we uh, stop the mail ballot application, then we might see an increase at poll site voting, which means we do need to have more equipment, more people. And the extra poll sites would, would probably hopefully uh, counteract that uh, that surge in people showing up, showing up to vote at the poll sites. At the end of the day... Um, the other issue happens to be a pay, a worker pay because it is a very long day. The state legislature does allow us to do an eight an eight hour day, but local policy they've not never embraced the idea of an eight hour day. Uh, that means two part time people uh, working half a day each 
so our election workers are required to work basically the 16 hours. They, they show up at 5 a.m. and they're not done until 7 or 8 p.m. Wow. Um, it's typically a 16-hour day. And they get paid just a little bit more than minimum wage. It's not uh, right at minimum wage. And so at the end of the day, the, the pay issue has been uh, has been cited as being a reason why we have trouble finding election workers. And county staff, we uh, our manager has been good about allowing county staff to to skip their regular duties for that one day and, and actually support uh, the election by working in the election uh, poll sites for uh, for the election office instead of the normal job. So we do fill in. Um, our employees, of course, get, of course, get paid the normal rate of pay. So if you think about that, that may not be uh, that if you if you didn't have to do that, we might might actually be able to use the same money and pay uh, people for that one day that are not not county staff to do that because our county staff are obviously going to make a little bit more money than that. Sure. At the end of the day, we, we do have to pay them a little bit more, obviously. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Uh, well, at least it sounds like we could be in a good position come election the year this year. And I like the fact that we have the election commissioner now coming in in the off season to kind of get that trial running because we don't mm-hmm. see, like you said, as big of a turnout. But with some of the other off-season elections that we've had and some of the primaries that we've seen in the last year or two, uh, we, we've been getting, what, anywhere between an 18 to 25% voter turnout. And it really kind of depends on, it depends on where you're at and, and what's on the ballot. So, for example, in Wichita this year, I expect the mayor's race will, will drive a lot of people to the primary. Yes. But uh, two years ago, when we had a city school election, there was no primary. There was no, there was no citywide primary. So the, uh, the primary numbers were very, very low. In fact, um, you don't really, it just depends on where you are. You know, I, I think there are some parts of the state where there's a very hot race and you'll see a great voter turnout and you'll see a lot of election activity, but it just all depends. And I think, you know, every presidential cycle, we usually see a huge turnout because people like to vote for president. But I look at election data pretty closely. I, I'm, I'm one of these people that likes, likes to uh, purchase the data from the state or the, from the county. Yeah. And look at that and, and really going back um, a few election cycles, uh, I would say this, the numbers have been pretty low. We have a higher registration today than we've ever had before. Our registrations are way up. But if you, even though the vote numbers have, are a little higher than they were before, the percentage has actually gone down. Interesting. So the percentages aren't as good as you think they would be. Yeah. Very interesting. I love it. we got a couple of minutes left here, Sedgwick County Commissioner Jim Howell. What else are you guys working on in the county level going into summer season? Now that we're, quote-unquote, almost back from COVID and we don't have to worry about masks or vaccines. What are you talking about? Social COVID, what's, what's that? Oh, that's right. Yeah, what was that? Yeah, we just that just disappeared. Right. It's nowhere in the air in any way, shape, or form now. I'm intentionally forgetting about <laughs> COVID. Thank you very much. That's right. Now, uh, I think probably one of the hottest things right right now, we our debt, our debt level is extremely low, which is great. I heard that we were basically better than 95% of other government units uh, sure. in terms of low debt. And we've been very conservative and judicious on not putting debt on things that, you know, and, and politicians, by the way, they love, love to spend money and uh, charge the future generation for those things. And they like to cut these ribbons and celebrate uh, pushing that cost on to someone else. Right. Um, in this case, we've been very judicious, but we've also not done some things that maybe need to be done at some point. So we have some EMS stations that need to be replaced. Uh, they're in very, very bad shape. We have uh, some fire stations that need to be, have some remodeling done. But really, we have an admin building situation coming up. I think I, think I talked about that uh, with you, Andy. Uh, there is an admin building need that uh, could be an 80,000-square-foot building we're going we're to have to purchase or, or build. Yeah. 
If we purchase it, it could be uh, ten, twelve, fourteen million dollars uh, turnkey. And this has been going on for a year or two. Yeah, yeah. You, many years, seven or eight years actually. Wow. And we also have a juvenile juvenile corrections building that's just kind of came up as being a priority for lots of reasons why that came up. But that's about a twenty million dollar uh, decision whether we're going to, going to do that or not. Plus the election office, plus the health, uh, the uh, mental health hospital, and we also have emergency management uh, building. We're going to be that's a fifteen million dollar building. And we're expanding our expanding our nine one one. Right now, they're at uh, seven hundred block North Main on uh, Main Street in Wichita, and they are out of space, and you have to hire more people. And that the building is is constructed in such a way you really can't expand the building. Not only more space, but did we hear a story that uh, they were also having concerns with safety issues with nine one one responders coming in the middle of the night and having to get yep, more safety so we and that sort of issue. a parking lot. We're going to fence the parking lot off and give them some security so they can park safely. Yeah, there's, again, there's just so many issues like this. And <laughs> emergency management. Uh, that building is going to be. It may not be downtown. It could be anywhere in the county, but it's going to be set up for the. The theory that we're going to have to do mass testing, uh, testing on a pandemic and vaccination lines again and that type of thing, a warehouse for PPE, but it's also going to be health department uh, based and emergency management. So if we have a tornado or a flood or earthquake or whatever uh, we have or plane crash and think about or rail car goes off the rails, ammonia leak downtown. Yep. The people who manage those types of disasters, it's called emergency management, and they ha- they they have to have a place to practice. Right. They have to have a place to to uh, to, uh, to do the commanding from, and right now that's in that building down at seven hundred block North Main Street in Wichita, and since nine one one is going to basically nine one one is going to take over the entire building, we have to build them a, them a new facility. On top of that, we have a fifteen million dollar Comcore Comcare expansion for a Comcare building. Sure. And we still have really not our thing, but we it is an item of discussion in the community, but a human services campus that could be. It could be who knows how expensive that might, might end up, and I think that's a, a multi partnership idea that's uh, coming. So add all that up. There's you know seven or eight significant buildings being talked about on paper. Man, you guys expand big time. Well, it's uh, it, it's wild because we're it's a lot of money, but at the same time, you guys have been planning on this for a long time. So right. any of the COVID nineteen relief money coming in that's going to help compensate for some of that. You know, that's it's a, not really a government expansion. That's actually yeah. an investment to to make things more efficient. Well, thankfully, we did get some. Uh, the first chunk of money was uh, called CARES money. That was uh, immediate money that we did share with uh, other governing bodies and schools and things like that. Then the second chunk of money we got it was uh, de- really dedicated to Sedgwick County. Wichita got their own distribution. Uh, a lot of other cities got their own distribution. We we received about $100 million for that. We're spending that money. Uh, we have been spending the money for COVID relief, uh, trying to get people back on their feet. There's about $15 million left, yeah. and uh, some of that money is going to pay for some of the things I just talked about. Sure. So the the uh, Cedric County District Court uh, remodel is almost entirely paid for by that. Our current location, or been displaced in the Ruffin building, that's about $3 million. That's been paid for by that ARPA funding. Okay. And so there's a few more things we can do with that. Um, uh, but that money, that money is basically getting pretty small, and I think that... Uh, we actually had a meeting a couple, maybe a month ago, talked about how do we spend uh, the remaining funds. And I just, you can imagine, we had probably 10 times more ideas yeah. on things that are really important and <laughs> really priorities for Sedgwick County that could spend those funds adequately and we would have nothing left. Yeah. So the money is going to be gone here sh- shortly, but uh, we still have a little bit of money left that hasn't actually been earmarked uh, for its final purpose yet, but it will be gone here soon. And these are, imp- if nothing else, you just think, say, well, why, why are you spending this money? Think of it this way: is displacing 
is displacing our dependency on property taxpayers. So I'm right. actually grateful for that. Yeah. Well, there is that. And again, that's that was my big question at the very beginning was how do we spend it to where we don't expand government to where we're in a hole later when the funds run out, but we can actually improve things that we already have right now. So it sounds like we're on the road to do that one. It's Central County Commissioner Jim Howell right here on Candace Talk. It's always good to talk to you, man. It's been a little bit. Andy, I love talking with you, and uh, you're doing a great job. I, I follow you, and uh, I'm very impressed. You're, you're doing more all the time. Hey, always appreciate it. Good stuff coming up. All right, we got to take a break here. We'll get ready to wrap up hour number one here on Candace Talk. Lots more to get to. Stay right here on KQAM. is our number one wrapped up here on Kansas Talk. Thanks again to Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howell coming on the show. Always great to chat with him. Great information and great update from the community. We'll get some more like that here coming up relatively soon. I promise you as well, we will be getting some of the mayoral candidates in the program over the next few weeks and months going into the August 1st primary. That's going to be huge and bigly. When we come back, we got lots more to talk about. State Representative Stephen Owen right around the corner here for hour two of Kansas Talk here on KQAM. Stay with us. Unfiltered. Broadcasting live from West Wichita in the KQAM studios. It's time for your weekend kickstart with Wichita's number one conservative talk radio host. This is Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier. Yes, indeed it is. Welcome back into it. It's hour number two of Kansas Talk right here on Wichita's Big Talker, 1480 on the AM dial, 99.7 HD4. If you have that smart radio, you can hear us in the high definition on that HD4 radio. Also, our friends out in Garden City, Kansas on 1240 KIUL. Welcome aboard. Great to have you. Happy Saturday morning, starting off another great weekend. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about. We, Hour number one, Cedric County Commissioner Jim Howell. We always appreciate his time chatting with him i have some interesting news we'll get to here in just a little bit emporia state university going through some legal battles because apparently they're not allowed to lay off professors even with the down uh, decrease in enrollment even with the financial struggles with the university not allowed to lay off professors they are there for life you can never ever 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 get rid of a professor in any way shape or form apparently we'll talk about that coming up in a little bit welcome into the program uh, right now, though, there's been some uh, confusion, I think, regarding some legislative bills coming out of the session of 2023, which we've talked a lot about. Did a recap of it with House Speaker Dan Hawkins, Senate President Ty Masterson, both of them in studio with us for our roundhouse and recap like we love to do on the program at the end of every session. But with some of the bills that are now coming out and starting to be implemented, there's a little bit of confusion. As you know, here at the KQAM studios, uh, here in Wichita, we have just across the two walls here are La Raza, Spanish radio station. And a couple of weeks ago, I had my program director come up to me and say, Andy, do you know anything about this bill? And it, it, is there a cause for concern? Because a lot of the listeners obviously may be uh, undocumented workers here in the area. And they were concerned about a potential crackdown of quote unquote illegal immigration in the community, which obviously we have our thoughts on illegal immigration and wanting to make sure that our communities are safe and in ways to do that. But 
there's a line between what we can and cannot enforce, both at the local, uh, county, and statewide levels compared to what the federal government does as well. But one of the bills that came out of the legislature, House Bill 2350, was a bill that's targeting specifically and focusing on human trafficking. I know, wild concept. At the end of Title 42 and the immigration crisis that we're seeing at the border right now, that uh, we would want to stop human trafficking and human smuggling across the state of Kansas and trying to make sure that uh, people aren't being taken and held and transported against their will for sexual favors or for other favors or for just whatever, taking the human right out of the issue. So the legislature passed this bill, House Bill 2350, which was in hopes to try and battle this issue that brought up some concerns for some members of the undocumented community or the Hispanic community about a potential crackdown for illegal immigration. Is that true? And is that something that uh, certain communities need to be concerned about? To talk about that on the line with us this morning, really to happen to have him back on the program now that the session is officially over. My state representative from District Number Seventy Four in the Newton area, it's State Representative Stephen Owen. Stephen, what's going on, brother? How we doing? Not much, man. Thanks for having me. It's a beautiful Saturday morning, and uh, really excited to to have a conversation with you about. House Bill 2350. Yeah, it's an interesting bill, and it's really one page. It looks relatively simple, uh, but Governor Kelly did veto this one, if I remember correctly, because she was making the cause for concern about this cracking down on immigration issues as well. But that's not what this bill does, and uh, we just heard some statements from uh, Police Chief uh, Joe Sullivan from Cedric County uh, Sheriff Jeff Easter where they're not concerned about this either, but talk about this bill and where this kind of originated from. Yeah, so this was a bill that was brought to us by a couple of our legislators that recognized that there was a gap in the system that exists currently. Uh, when, When undocumented immigrants are being transported across state lines, and, and uh, they get pulled over, and maybe those folks are being held against their will, or maybe they're not being held against their will. But under current law, there was no way to hold the person that was driving that vehicle accountable for their part in, in putting these folks in a situation to where they could be exploited. And so that's the attempt was to, to hold that person accountable. And so, you know, we, we work this bill in my committee. As you know, I'm chairman of the Corrections Juvenile Justice Committee. It's, I'm, I'm certainly honored to do so. And we worked this bill all the way through the conference committee process. And, and when we originally brought it to the House floor for a final vote, um, there were questions raised that led us to realize, you know what, this isn't uh, the way that it needs to be, and we need to go back and fix it. So we took it back into conference. We clarified the language using our attorneys, which are our revisers. Uh, and this is the product of uh, of our revisers, our Senate, and our House working together. Now, as you mentioned, the governor uh, did veto this. So why did she veto this? Yeah. Let me read, if I might, her veto message um, and and then speak about that for a second. In her veto message I'm reading, it says, you just have to look at basic examples. If a good Samaritan gives his or her fellow Kansan a ride to work and receives gas money in exchange, or if a paramedic while on duty transports someone to the emergency room, they could be subject to a level five felony. That is unequivocally 100% not the case under this law. And I'm wondering... When the governor uh, ultimately vetoed this, as she was reading an older version of the law that we fixed, because very clearly you have to meet a three-pronged test to be guilty 
uh, or to be charged with human smuggling, right? And so, um, let me chat. Let me chat about those three, the the three prong test, if I might. I know I'm kind of rambling, but it's important to tie all this together because I think a lot of this misconception yeah. came from her veto message. Sure. I think that a combination of her veto message and what happened in Florida and the left really trying to push this narrative that Republicans are, are you know, out to get them. I think this is all balling up into something that's being way overblown. So that's what her veto message says. But you have to meet a three-pronged test for human smuggling. And that is, is you had to have known or should have known that the individual is entering into or remaining in the United States illegally. B, the second one, you have to benefit financially or receive something of value. And so if those were the only two qualifiers, then you're right. The friend giving somebody a ride who gets paid gas money or the paramedic taking somebody to the hospital who's receiving compensation would absolutely be the case. But there's this third one that is the key. They have to know or should have known that the individual being smuggled is likely to be exploited for the financial gain of another. So Um, your fellow Kansan, you're giving a ride to the gas station, is not doing that. Your paramedics not transporting them to be exploited for the financial gain of another. And so her veto message truly missed the mark. Well, it missed the mark, but I think it was done like she does oh so well intentionally to create that fear of politics. Because shortly after she vetoed this and she made that statement saying how it was so easily abused to be able to say, well, I'm going to give gas money to someone helping me out here. So therefore, I'm gaining financially and therefore I'm exploiting them in some way, shape or form. As soon as she made that comment, the memes and the uh, warnings went all over social media about how uh, that's exactly what's going to happen and how people are going to be cracking down and how people are going to be scared of transporting others to work on a daily basis or co-driving with them every day because of this concern. So it was completely misrepresenting exactly what this bill was intending to do for, I think, that fear of politics. A hundred percent, because we address this very issue with that third prong. This is what our attorneys, right? These are our revisers. They are kind of our committee, excuse me, our committee attorneys that represent us and help us work through these things. They're the ones that helped us craft that language for that third prong. And so, you know, what we're talking about is likely to be exploited for the financial gain of another. So you have a smuggler driving a U-Haul with 20 undocumented immigrants locked in the back, and they're taking them to a sex trafficking ring. They're taking them to a labor trafficking ring, right? That's the financial gain of another. So you, just for receiving some value, right, even if you overcharged that undocumented immigrant, um, you know, $100 to drive them five miles to the gas station, you're exploiting them, you still don't technically qualify under this bill because it's knows or should have known the individual being smuggled is likely to be exploited for the financial gain of another person. Yeah, it's an it, I'm glad you guys are addressing this issue, because obviously with the ending of Title 42, the mass migration that we're seeing right now at the border, the two minute screening time that we're seeing from border agents from the federal government saying, oh, you're completely fine. You, you've passed your health screening test. You passed your national security test that we know you're not a threat in a two minute screening time because there's so many. They just want to kind of run them through the mill here. We don't know what's going on. And with the flood of fentanyl, with the flood of human trafficking, and with really yeah. the state of Kansas having that straight shot from the border to the center of the country where they disperse out, we're one of the hot spots, especially here in the Wichita and Kansas City area, 
we're one of those hotspots to where we see a lot of that because this is the main hub to go from here to the rest of the country. Exactly right. Human trafficking is a huge issue in this state, but it's an issue that the average person doesn't see, right? The average person doesn't see the arrest. They don't see the harm. They don't see the abuse. The average person just hears about it. Um, But we know we're one of, I think, the top five states in the nation for human trafficking for that very reason. Mm -hmm. I want to be clear. Why our federal government has not fixed the immigration system over the last decade is beyond me. There is no doubt we have got to secure our southern border for more reasons than illegal immigration, like you mentioned, the fentanyl crisis, the human trafficking, all of these other things. But the reality is we want more taxpayers in the state of Kansas. We need more people to be here legally because we have jobs to fill. We want them to become good, productive members of society that ultimately would uh, reduce the tax burden on you and I because they're here, they're paying taxes, they're working hard, and we need them here. But we need them here legally. And I I continue to call on our federal government to act on this because it doesn't matter whether it's a a Democrat majority and a Democrat president or a Republican majority and a Republican president. We refuse to address this issue of immigration and fix our broken system. Amen to that. I'm right there with you. We're talking with State Representative Stephen Owens from District Number 74 in the Newton, Kansas area. I'd like to remind as well that, uh, and just real briefly, talk about the difficulty it is for lo- local law enforcement, especially the you know maybe a city police officer, even uh, a county sheriff, to actually try to enforce an immigration issue. Let's just say that the fear, the politics of fear that uh, Kelly's been spreading is accurate, which it's not, as we just showed. But even if it were, and they were trying to go down this road of saying that we're going to start cracking down and just rounding people up if we pull them over and realize that somehow we find out that we're taking someone to work and we're they are paying for gas money or something, uh, even if that were true, local law enforcement doesn't handle immigration issues. That has to be something that's referred to ICE at the federal level, and ICE is horrible at getting back and actually handling these issues. In the first place, local law enforcement has nothing to do with this issue. No, you're absolutely right. The only time local law enforcement gets involved is when an undocumented immigrant's breaking another law, generally in a significant way, as a matter of fact, and they go to jail. And when they're arrested and they go to jail, then there is a process and they're required to notify ICE if they have an undocumented immigrant. And then ICE has the ability to put a hold on them and to keep them incarcerated until either their case is over or they could take them earlier if they decline prosecution. Um, and and move them through the immigration system. Uh, I've worked in this field for 20 plus years. I know exactly how it works. Uh, and that's why, you know, th- there's this this fear. And look, I don't I don't pretend to understand how the undocumented immigrants in our community feel. Right. I, I don't. I'm not trying to to say that I do. What I am saying, though, is that we in the state of Kansas do not arrest undocumented immigrants simply for being here illegally. We don't. We have no jurisdiction to do that. We have no law to do that. That is all handled on a federal level. And the feds generally only get involved when there's another significant crime committed. Yeah. I know it's early, but with the ending of Title 42 and the mass migration that we are seeing, the buses that are being taken and the flights that are being taken all over the country, obviously New York and California ironically are saying, wait a second, well, how come they're being flown here because we don't have the resources to take care of these individuals? Are we already starting to see or have you heard any news about starting to see any of those migrants 
uh, intentionally being brought to the Mid-America region and here in the state of Kansas at all? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I've actually heard, um, and I had a, a law enforcement officer reach out to me and share a, a picture of a bus that uh, dropped off what he believed. Now, he didn't go ask them, so he has no authority to, but what he believed to be a busload of undocumented immigrants that were shipped up here from Texas mm. um, and, and uh, were dropped off in Salina. Um, and so, you know, who, who sent them, how they got here, why they got here, I don't have any of those answers. But the reality is that does continue to be a problem that is perpetuated. And look, I mean, I, I can't imagine what our, our southern border states of Texas and Arizona and New Mexico are up against with the flood of migrants entering these communities. But there is simply no way. And we all know that the vast majority of these folks are good people that are just trying to better their circumstances, right? right. They, they see the grass is greener on the other side of the border and they want to catch the American dream that you and I so desperately fight for day after day. And so I get that. But at the same time, when you talk to those that have immigrated here illegally or their ancestors have immigrated here legally, um, they don't like illegal immigration either. Yeah. They want people, they want the system fixed so that people can come here legally and help uh, grow our state and, and grow our country in the right way. Oh, absolutely. And well, I mean, and I've said this many times on the program, talking to the Hispanic community now that we have our Spanish station here in the same radio building as us with our with our new station, talking to members of that community, they are absolutely against the open border policy that we have right now, because many of them, even if they did come here undocumented, got here because they were getting away from cartels and criminal activity that was putting their lives in danger. They don't want that coming up to this area as well, and that's exactly what's happening, and they see that's what's happening. And while they're trying to uh, not necessarily focus on just the family trying to make their lives better, they're focused on the crime, the drugs, and uh, the, the cartels that are coming in dominating communities and making sure that you can't operate unless you're under the cartel's quote-unquote protection as a mob-like mentality. They don't want that coming here to the United States, and they see that, and they're causing a, a sounding the alarm for that cause for concern as well. That's exactly it. And, and, you know, we talk about the cartels, right, like there's some distant figure, and, and we talk about these things. My wife and I had a chance to visit with uh, my foreign exchange student brother who lives in Leon, Mexico, which is about three hours north of Mexico City. Uh, and we, we flew down there and spent four days with him in, in deep in the heart of Mexico. Wonderful culture, beautiful people. I mean, yeah. just just steeped in history. Some of the hardest working folks that you will honestly ever meet. There was not a single person standing at a corner with a sign that says "Give me money." But there <laughs> were people at the corners that are willing to wash your windows to earn money, or yep. to change your wiper blades to earn money, or to sell you something to earn money. Nobody was asking for a handout down there. But the corruption is so evident down there. We actually got pulled over by the National Guard, who then tried to write um, my uh, brother Jorge a ticket for speeding. And my brother Jorge was like, dude, no, write me a ticket if you're going to. Well, no, you can just pay us off now. No, write me a ticket. He fought with them for 45 minutes. You know why? Because in Mexico, the National Guard can't write tickets. They're not given a ticket book. They don't have the authority. Wow. They're not issued radar guns. It was pure and simple a shakedown that is government authorized down there that the National Guard is encouraged to pull these people over and try to extort money from them. So, yes, 
the corruption is is rampant down there and and the cartels do own the border we had a long talk about that the amount of money you have to pay just to get to the border is unbelievable uh, and and the way people have to sell their souls if you will to get to that point is is quite atrocious so it is real on the other side of the border and so again i say i don't blame people for wanting to come to america and wanting to have an opportunity at freedom and liberty and and the the bounty that comes with working your rear end off. I don't blame them. But we've got to do it in a way that is sustainable. We've got to do it in a way that uh, encourages growth in the right direction and where we're actually making sure we're letting good people into this community and not the traffickers and the drug dealers and all this other stuff. Yeah. Amen to that. I'm right there with you. It is the law and order that keeps us standing out among the rest of the nations around the world, which is why people are envious about us. And it's uh, such a weak system to try and defend and keep going because obviously we're seeing what's going on at the federal level as well. Last question for you uh, uh, as we kind of wrap things up here in the last minute or so, but we talked to KBI Director Tony Mativi just a couple of weeks ago regarding the fentanyl crisis in the state. Going into session of 2024, do you think that's going to be a top-of-mind priority for legislators in uh, in our state government to try and focus on ways to continue to battle fentanyl in the state? Yeah, so we passed Senate Bill 174 uh, this past year, which it made some headlines, but not a lot. But within that bill uh, creates significant penalties for the manufacturing of fentanyl, which includes everything from making it into a pill-like form, lacing it with other drugs, uh, and a number of other things actually uh, is considered manufacturing of fentanyl now. Um, And the penalties is presumptive prison two times the normal sentence mm. when you make it or you manufacture fentanyl in the state of Kansas, or if you make it attractive to minors by making it colorful and look like Skittles and stuff like that. So I'm here to tell you folks, if, if you're caught manufacturing fentanyl in any way, shape or form, you're going to prison for a darn long time in the state of Kansas. Got to crack down on it. I love it. And it's a way because we're seeing massive. Uh, we saw the biggest fentanyl bust of the entire nation come out of Wichita, Kansas here just a while ago. So it's a major issue that we need to continue to focus on. And I'm glad you guys are doing it. Hopefully we can see some good legislation come out next year along with uh, working with the KBI director, Tony Mativia. State Representative Stephen Owens, District Number 74. Stephen, I know the session's over, my friend, but good stuff. Keep up that fight. We're looking forward to seeing what we can do next year. All right, my friend, I'll see you July 4th for the good old Burton 4th of July parade. That's what it's about, my friend. And actually, fun story for that, I will be getting back from the border the day before broadcasting live down there, so that'll be fun as well. And we'll have some more information on that a little bit as well. It's Stephen Owens. We appreciate that. Got to take a break here on Candace Talk. Lots more coming up on KQAM. Stay here. back into the program. Thanks again to State Representative Stephen Owens coming on the program. Always great to chat with him and great information on that House Bill 2350. Don't you love the politics of fear, the misinformation, the paranoia the left spreads trying to make us look bad because they want to bring us down? Guess what? It's not happening. We're not going to allow it to happen. Got a lot more coming up when we come back. We'll shift gears to talk about higher education going into the fall school semester right here on Kansas Talk. Stay right here.
It's Wichita's number one conservative talk radio host. This is Kansas Talk with Andy Hoosier. Hey, you're darn right it is. Welcome back into the program. Last half hour on the home stretch here. The weekend with Michael Brown right around the corner here on the Big Talker KQM and coincidentally out in KIUL as well, 1240 AM. As we broadcast here on Saturday mornings, trying to kick off your weekend the best way we possibly know how to do so. By the way, a selfish plug. Starting next weekend, we'll still be doing this program, but on top of this, both stations, KQM, KIUL, and many others around the place will also be hearing our brand new nationally syndicated version of The Voice of Reason, our two-hour weekend program we're starting up. And look forward to that broadcast starting next week, the 24th of June. Really excited about that. Thank you all for the kind messages and words about that one. Very, very exciting stuff. Welcome back in. 316-721-8255. We have a lot to talk about for this last half hour. We're going to try and cram into as much as we can. So I... Uh, you know me, I am conservative. We're about as far right as we could possibly get on a program without being like, you know, crazy anarchists because we're not anarchists because anarchy is actually fueled by the progressives that want to cause chaos in the system and disrupt our rule of law. But I, when it comes to division, because Democrats are so good at division, whether it's the racial divisions or even now the really the biggest identity politics now is income levels. If you're rich, you're evil. If you're poor, it's because the rich, evil people are keeping you down. You don't have any opportunities for personal success. You don't have the American dream any longer to work hard and be able to get ahead and start a new business or get your bills paid down, which I admit is very difficult with how many pieces of red tape and hurdles that the Democrats and progressives put in uh, both at a statewide and a national level. But I want to bring this down to the state of Kansas and even uh, here in somewhat of our region with Emporia State University and some of the other things going on. Right now, first off, here in Wichita, and you know how I feel about unions. I, I just have to throw that out there. That's right there. Trigger for a lot of people on this program, the triggering of our union conversation. Yes. But I have to make a comment about the unions. There was the negotiations and the contract that is tentatively pending right now between Spirit Aerosystems and the Lodge, local Lodge 839 of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, where they have been working on extending their workers' contract before the workers begin to strike. The contract runs out on Friday next week. They have tentatively come to an agreement, and they are voting on it, meaning the workers, they are voting on it in Hartman Arena on Wednesday this coming up week. Now, I want to read you some of the details of this negotiation because this is why I am livid and do not care for unions in any way, shape, or form. I understand that we fight for better working conditions. We try to, you know, at least compete with inflation when inflation's sitting anywhere between five to seven to nine percent, depending on what flavor of the Biden administration we get to enjoy and what year of that we get to enjoy it with. But it's been floating up there and things have been getting more expensive, obviously. Now we can talk about what causes inflation, which the vast majority of inflation is actually caused by the government printing money without a basis, uh, spending money above their means. Right now we're sitting at 120, 140 percent of our GDP in debt that we have. We have record tax revenue coming into the country and yet less of that tax money coming in to compensate for that. With the record tax money coming in, we still spend more uh, than we have actually coming in, which is a problem. At the same time, we continue to inflate the private sector. 
And we all use the analogy of the grocery store. You pay the grocery store worker more money. That means there's less revenue and profits coming into the business, which is there. I know very triggering again for some, very triggering for the, just to be aware, just to let you know that yes, businesses are in business to actually make money. It's a wild concept. It's very strange and foreign for some, but that's the reality of the private sector is you can't perform the duties that you want to perform and offer the services you want to offer unless you have money coming in. So you can either do that by begging for money as a nonprofit organization, or you can be a for-profit and actually generate revenue. And when the revenue gets cut because you're paying your workers more, that means you can either take the hit and have less revenue coming in as a profit, or you raise the price of your products that goes back to the consumer. So the grocery store worker that's getting more money now gets to pay more for the food that they're working to put on the shelves, which means now did they really honestly get a pay pay raise? Because I don't really think they did. That being said, I have to admit that I doubt that we're going to be flying much over the next few years because according to the new uh, potential contract between Spirit Aerosystems and the Lodge number 839 of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. Here's what the tentative deal includes that will be voted on Wednesday this week. According to Cake News, we get to experience a 34% pay increase over the next four years for the machinist workers, voluntary overtime on Sundays, job benefit increases, along with a $7,500 ratification bonus. I want to stop right there. I get that we try to fight for better wages, better benefits to make our lives better. I get that the inflation is really hard right now and that prices are really expensive and that it is very tough for individuals that are working in many different industries right now. I completely understand. I don't make a million dollars on the radio either. I totally understand it. Inflation right now is sitting at a 30, uh, sitting at a anywhere between, say, say four right now, let's say between four and seven, four and seven percent. The workers will be getting a 34 percent pay increase over the next four years. Show of hands, how many other individuals in their working industries have been able to get a 34 percent pay increase in the last four years over a four year period? been able to increase your pay over 34%. Many if you don't if you even get a pay raise at all has been just enough to try and keep you on board with maybe a 2 to 3 to 5% pay increase, not a 34% increase. Now what is this going to do because this is not just Spirit Aerosystems that has to deal with this. It's really every industry that has a union, but let's talk about the aviation industry for just a second. You have Spirit Aerosystems that is building airplanes and parts for the aviation industry. Which means Spirit, who, by the way, is losing billions of dollars on quarterly revenue reports, largely because of recalls from the planes from the past few years and different government contracts and different government regulations. Spirit Aerosystems has reported billions, with a B, of revenue loss over the past few uh, quarterly revenue reports in the last few years. They're losing money, but yet the workers say they're not going to work unless they get a 34% pay increase. Now, I am all about taking care of individuals and making sure that you're being compensated properly, but that is to be decided based on the value that you bring to the table in the market based on the value of the position that you're working. And a 34% pay increase, I could be completely off here, and maybe I am, but I think 34% is a little excessive to be growing over a four-year period. That's almost a 10% increase a year in pay. 
that's a lot. And even if you're not making a lot, that's still a lot of money for the large amount of employees that the company has who's already losing billions of dollars of revenue in their quarterly business reports for the company. That's insane. And this is not an attack on the low-income individuals that are just trying to work and get a better life for themselves. No, this is, hey, uh, we need to get the hell out of the industry, meaning unions. We need to get unions the hell out of the way and let businesses run the way businesses need to operate because this is insanity. Then the voluntary overtime on Sundays, job benefit increases, don't even know what the job benefits are, and the $7,500 ratification bonus. Uh, I I guess I understand that because a lot of them have to give you a once uh, lump sum pay up front just to cover and like entice you to actually sign up and actually work. So, okay, I get it. We're in a state of desperation because no one wants to work right now, or at least a lot of people don't need to work, or they're still trying to live off the COVID-19 benefits and throwing a fit that they're losing those benefits and trying to figure out what to do next. I understand that. The biggest issue to me is that 34% pay increase. That is a lot, and to me, just a little bit excessive. Now, on the other front of this, let's go to the universities and higher education for a second, shall we? On the other front, because remember, I'm I'm playing the middle of the road here. The workers are depending on unions to disrupt the private market and disrupt the value of the private market based on the jobs that are being presented and the, and the jobs that are being offered here. And they're screwing up the private sector by inflating the price of jobs that probably don't need to be paid that much. Now, the reason that they need to be paid that much now, not saying that they need to, but the reason that they're being paid that much now is because of inflation and the cost of living, which we could easily address not by raising the price of the salaries, but by deflating the amount of government spending and deflating the the economy so we don't have inflation and therefore it's cheaper to buy products and therefore it's easier to live on the current salaries that you have rather than trying to increase those. But on the other front, then we have the quote-unquote elite, the rich, the higher end, the establishment ones that are taking advantage of the system as well. Now, it's a little bit different scenario because these are government employees, essentially. These are not private sector corporate owners. But I want to read the same time at KSNT News the amount of salary increases that the presidents of state universities across the state of Kansas will be receiving. Now, this is coming at a time when universities are going into the fall semester saying that depending on what university you're looking at, state university, you know, KU, K-State, Wichita State, Fort Hay State, Pittsburgh State, Emporia, those sorts of things, uh, I, that they are going into the new school year saying that they're running into budgetary cuts and budgetary restraints because of the lack of students enrolling in the universities. And because of less students enrolling, they're announced that they're raising tuition rates anywhere between 5 to 7%, depending on what university you look at. They, get, they just can't afford it. They, they don't have as many students. They're not paying for the tenured teachers. They're not paying for the department. And instead of downsizing the university, saying, hey, we don't have a need for this department any longer because only five students are enrolling in it, we're raising tuition rates to continue on to just try and keep the status quo. This is how the government works, remember. This is the universities. This is the state universities run by the government to where we can't let the university start downsizing because, by golly, we have tenured professors that are the most important thing on the face of the earth, and they can never be fired in any way, shape, or form. We're seeing that with Emporia State University right now, where last year they proposed their budget cuts. They laid off a bunch of the professors. 
The professors apparently got angry, sued, and now the courts are saying that they have to bring a couple of those uh, students or a couple of those professors back. And the professors still up in the air on what's really happening. This is pretty concerning when you have a system set up where you have an appeals process and then the university goes to district court. It's a case of when is reinstatement really reinstatement. It's been the most difficult period of my professional life. Since September 15th, uh, I think most of the terminated expected these hearings to be finished by maybe the end of the year. This is what we were led to believe, and now it's the middle of the summer following. It's been trauma after trauma, I think, for us. It's been trauma after trauma. Very difficult for a professor that's supposed to just have a locked-in job to where he's supposed to die in the office and never, ever, ever have the chance of his job being let go or laid off in any way, shape, or form, even if there's no students in that classroom. By golly, he needs that job, and he will get paid from that state university because he is the most special person on the face of the earth. Now, that being said, I don't know all the details, maybe, so maybe I'm speaking out of terms here, but if a university is losing revenue and has less students enrolling, then what is the purpose of a department that does not have any students sitting in there for them? Just throwing that question out there. But the students are upset, and the professors are upset, suing the university to keep on the professors that are being laid off because of budgetary restraints from the university. That's, in my opinion, that's really, really stupid. So maybe there's something else deeper going on here that's just not clicking. That light bulb hasn't come on for me here. But I fail to see why a professor's job is so important and so locked in and so validated and so secure that even when the university is having budget restraints, you can't downsize and actually get rid of This is the problem with the university system. And I've you know, complained about them for a while, you know, the, the first two years where you're not even doing anything that's related to your uh, studies in any way, shape, or form. You're taking your basic studies, again, that you just did with high school, because by golly, we're going to squeeze everything out of you, and the two years, you won't even touch your degree until you get into your junior year. Then we'll start that, and oh, by the way, you'll probably need to go into, you know, year five and six and seven if you want to become a specialist, as opposed to, I'm going to come in and I want to major in this. Okay, boom, day one, you're in that class 101, period, end of story. The university system's a complete sham and stupid, and it drives me nuts, and that's why I left after two years, because I couldn't deal with the stupid uh, bureaucracy that was in there just to get that degree, saying that you went through their load of crap. Now, that being said, with the professors that feel really, really important and victimized, because it's very traumatic if whether you have a job or not coming up next year, like any other job in the private industry, where, hey, we have to downsize and we're laying you off. (laughs) <laughs> that happens all the time, right? Hey, we're downsizing. We don't have enough money. I'm sorry, but you're getting laid off. Hopefully we can bring you back later. If not, we'll give you a good recommendation for another job. That's the way the real world works. Instead of subsidized tax money saying, I can't believe they're letting me go. At the same time, however, on that front, then we go to the other side of it with the elites on the high end, where while the universities are doing anywhere between a 5 to 7% increase in their tuition rates, We're now seeing universities make an announcement that they're also giving an increase in the presidents of the universities with their salaries. And the salaries, by the way, are nothing to, uh, you know, hold your breath about. They are pretty intense. They're pretty insane. So we have to raise the tuition because we don't have enough money to pay professors or to keep the departments going the way they want. So we're going to downsize and go into court spending taxpayer money fighting this issue. But, oh, by the way, we're going to raise the 
rates of the salaries for the presidents of the universities. The biggest one coming from Kansas State University, President Richard Linton going up by a 10.2% increase on his pay rate. I guess it does happen. I guess it's not just spirit aerosystem workers getting about a 10% yearly uh, raise. Oh, by the way, but that's going up to $565,000 as a yearly salary. University of Kansas Chancellor Douglas Gerard is getting a 4% increase, now sitting at $655,000. For the fiscal year's 2024 CEO compensation, Wichita State University's President Rick Muma is getting a five and a quarter percent increase in salary to five hundred thousand dollars, even half million dollar yearly salary to run that university. Fort Hayes State University getting a six percent increase for President Tisa Mason to three hundred and eighteen thousand dollars. Pittsburgh State University up by 4% for their president, Daniel Shipp, to two hundred and eighty-six thousand. Emporia State University. The one that's cutting all the professors right now, President Ken Hush, getting a 4% increase up to $286,000. And Kansas Board of Regents President Blake Flanders. You don't even have to be a university of the the school. You're just on the president for the Kansas Board of Regents getting a 5.7% increase to $280,000 because it's really important for them to get that increase while we raise the tuition rates for students who are taking out ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in student loans a year just to be able to attend, spending 10, 20 years of their life after school to pay them off because they're trying to pay for those student loans that are absolutely ridiculous. You have to pay more to go to the university, but the university professors, the top down, the bureaucrats in the system are getting more money. Does this make sense to anybody? Does this make sense to anyone at all? Why we have to pay more so the bureaucrats can get more money. This is the same with the K-12 education. Uh, The Democrats here in the state of Kansas complain constantly about K-12 not being properly funded for the public education system. We give them more money, and who gets the money? Oh, that's right, the bureaucrats. The paper pushers behind, not the teachers, but the paper pushers and the administrators behind the scenes. They're the ones that get all the money. And then, well, we'll give you like a half 1% increase in your pay, teachers. We'll give you a little bump. We'll give you a one-time stimulus paycheck from the school district because we care oh so much about you. But by by the way, you're going to be paying more in your tuition overall. This is the stupid we have to deal with here. And this is why the public education, especially the private or the, the state college system, the state universities need to have a serious cleaning internally through their systems, downsize if the students aren't there, get rid of the professors if there's no one in their classrooms, get rid of them if there's a budget cut, but there is zero reason for the half million, quarter, three-quarter million dollar salaries to be paid for the university presidents to be increased when we're cutting everybody else and students have to pick up that paycheck through student loans that are going to cost them the rest of their life to pay off. This is the government at its best. And when they say that the government runs somewhat efficiently, you laugh in their face and you spit out these numbers at them and you make them act and seem absolutely foolish because that's exactly what they are. This is insane, man. Lots more coming up here in Kansas Talk. Stay here. We're talking again with the AARP, whether it's the Fraud Watch Network or Retirement Calculator, getting involved in the community. Make sure to check them out online at aarp.org slash ks for the state of Kansas. Also find them and follow them on their social media as well. Glenda's on the line with us today. Glenda, how are you today? I am doing well. How are you, Andy? Doing great. Always good to chat with you. We talk a lot about the Fraud Watch Network with a lot of scams going on, which there's 
Always something to talk about there. But let's talk about specifically elder financial abuse, where it's not just scams online. It's not just scams uh, of people trying to take advantage over the interweb. But there's a lot of different ways where elders are being abused financially right now, isn't there? Yes, there are. There are. Over 370 incidents, really, of financial abuse targeting older adults were reported just last year and even during this year. So uh, that really cost us about an estimated $4.8 billion in losses. So you are absolutely right. It's happening. That's a lot of money being lost. How is this happening and what should be be on the lookout for? Well, I tell you, even those numbers kind of underestimate what's happening. But um, we are also approaching on uh, June 15th. World Elder Abuse Awareness Day. So uh, in line with that, we want to um, let people know to encourage your loved ones to designate someone that they trust to help them with their financial decisions. Um, There is a a government elder care locator that you can find on the web, and that will help them with low-cost or even uh, free financial assistance. So there are some ways that we can get, you know, financial, can get help for them. That, so that they won't be caught in those kinds of situations. Sure. There's a lot of different types of situations, as we mentioned, both with you know, maybe phone calls coming in or emails, but also maybe potential caretakers, which has been a big thing we've seen over the last few years. Yes, it has. So, you know, we really suggest that you add a, a trusted contact, someone that you really trust for your financial institution's information in, in case you're, they are unreachable or if questionable activity is detected. And then also, you know, we need to be assured that even someone you trust or you thought you trust uh, is, is uh, who wants to begin to discourage any contact with their family members, those caregivers you're talking about, you know, or even putting pressure on the elders to make financial decisions. Those are some things we need to, to kind of look out for that we might want to be aware of that that could potentially be happening or asking them for large sums of money, those kinds of um, activities. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Is it better to have multiple people maybe oversee the finances of an elder individual so that way it kind of limits that amount of potential fraud or taking advantage of someone that way? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Anytime you're taking care of someone, it's a family or it it really takes more than one person. So it's always good to to be able to have more than uh, one person who is, at least aware and kind of do a double check on that for you in case something happens. But, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. That That's a great idea. But we also want people to know that when that financial exploitation happens, that it's a crime and um, it, they can report that, report it to your police or to your, to the sheriff, or even if it's an emergency situation to 911. Yeah, absolutely. It is a large concern. One more time, if people have concerns or maybe want to study up on it a little bit to be prepared, how can they reach out? What kind of resources do you have available? Absolutely. Being a fraud fighter, spotting the scam and stopping the scam, they can always uh, reach out to our network, our ARP.org uh, slash fraud watch network, or they can even call our helpline, which is one 3360 Always good information. What else is going on with the AARP? Obviously, with the summertime, you talk about a lot of events going on, a lot of community things, ways to get together and enjoy and maybe learn a little something as well. But what else do you have going on with the AARP? Right. We do have uh, different activities coming up uh, in Wichita this weekend. We have the Juneteenth activities that are are the parade, a senior appreciation uh, event activity. So there's different things that are out and about, especially in Wichita and around around Kansas that are happening in um, celebration of the Juneteenth activities. 
Great. Always good stuff. Yeah, Juneteenth coming up. It's hard to believe it's already here. Halfway through a 2023 yes. already. And yes. a happy Juneteenth there. It's aarp.org slash ks for the state of Kansas. Find all the great festivities. Find all the infomercials, all the great uh, webinars you guys have with some information there. Also, the community events as well. Again, aarp.org slash ks for the state of Kansas. Also, find and follow them on their social media as well. Glenda, we appreciate it very much. Let's do it again here soon. Let's do it again. I just want to share that we will have our Fraud Watch Network online on Friday also, so we can also get more information. Perfect. Always great information. Glenda, we'll do it again next Wednesday.